0: Finland's celebrated motorsport driver, Rauno Altonen, won many events and along with local Australian hero Bob Holden, in 1966 finished first in our famous touring car race at Bathurst Mount Panorama in a tiny Mini Cooper S. Rauno is now 83 years old, still has an international racing licence and remains thoughtful and crystal clear about the right approach to racing and to life. I recorded a chat with him for the Overdrive, Cars, Transport and Culture radio and podcast program. The full interview and selected segments can be found on the website drivenmedia.com.au. You were part of the Works BMC Mini Rally team out of the UK. How important to you was the preparation of that team?
1: Well, actually, um, I didn't do much preparation at all. It was Bob who did it all. And and I was very, very pleased when I was teamed with Bob because um, our op- ideas and opinions were very much the same. And uh, I think one of the key factors for the for the victory, the win in the Bathurst, was that Bob said that, in his opinion, because the 10-inch wheels, they don't last for very long normally, so we should take the hardest possible tire available, not the, the tire giving traction, but the tire which would last as long as possible. And uh, everybody else had you know, tires which were having good traction as best, best possible. And Bob uh, chose to have Michelin X, which is a fantastic tire, but it's harder the rubber compound, and it was, yes, also a radial tyre, and it gave us a much, much longer mileage than anything else, which meant that we didn't have to change wheels as often.
0: And changing wheels was pretty archaic back in those times, wasn't it?
1: Well, you see, uh, they didn't have any central hub nuts, but you had... uh, I think four wheel bolts. Was, was it five? I think it was four. And uh, it, it took time to open them and put them back again. So the driver change
0: would take much longer if we would change wheels as well. When did you get to drive the Mini the first time? It was the first time at the event in practice?
1: Yes. We did not come to Australia much earlier Uh, we just flew in some days before
0: it was an Australian mini did Bob talk to you about how he had uh, balanced the car and worked on it a bit
1: yes yes he uh, I don't remember the details but because if everything he had made it it made sense this is important
0: when you got in the car did it feel good did the, after all the work Bob had done,
1: uh, you see what he did. He he did everything to optimize the car. Small things, because uh, no major changes were allowed. It, it had to be nearly boxed in that car according mm-hmm. to regulations. And I I knew the Minis so well because I had been driving the Minis since um, '62.
0: And so this one felt pretty good.
1: It, it felt uh, it felt good, and it felt the same as as the works I've been driving in
0: Europe. Did you start to set good times compared to the other two members of your team?
1: I think we were about, about equal. No, no big changes, because the, the other members of the team they were also top top drivers, and uh, they knew what to do. So. I must say I don't have the lap times in my memory at all
0: because <laughs> I, have
1: done so much, I have done so many races and rallies in my life.
0: Now that's fine.
1: All I remember is that those Michelin tyres, they, they were not a handicap for lap times, although they will last much longer.
0: That suggests the car was pretty good, doesn't it? Yes.
1: So that, that means that if you you normally use tyres which have the softest, softest possible rubber compound to give you maximum traction, but they don't don't last that long either. So you have to make a compromise. So you have a reasonable traction, and as long life as possible for the tires. Because I, I give you an example: uh, Dunlop racing tires, which we use in rallies in Europe, on a special stage in Europe, the shortest distance. I have driven and lost all the rubber
2: Hmm.
1: for 12
2: kilometers.
1: (laughs) To show, you see, the tire wear, if the tires are soft, but also that was a rally stage, which means it had very many tight corners and the buffers you have. The tire has the time to cool down between the corners, which is also a fact because the, the tire temperature is also an important factor for the life of the tyre.
0: How hard was it to learn the Bathurst circuit?
1: I must say that I don't remember. I I think I had been there before. So it wasn't the first time. And the circuit was not so difficult to learn. Because it was mainly sharp corners, except on on the Mount Panorama, where you had a very sort of the series of corners where you had to choose your line and uh we dis- of course we discussed with Bob about the line what he thought was the best and, and I agreed with him so it was mostly the line which we agreed together to drive. With saloon cars it's not the principle as you, you have in the, in, the, in the formula cars where it's important to get quickly out of the corner and In the saloon cars, you you have to go fast into the corner as well, because with a small engine, you have to keep the momentum going on all the time, which means that you have to have a smooth line. So if you get it sideways, the car will slow down too much. So smooth driving is the essence of this kind of racing. And also because it was a long race, you have to be smooth for the car, preserve your tires
0: you've spoken how the preparation of a rally car is quite different from a race car what about driving them did you ever find it difficult to go from one to the other
1: no no in that sense there is no difference except that in 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 racing you have much wider space to use (laughs) for your line and in rally you often there is no space at all. It's very narrow, and and also in in rallies you have to take more into consideration the road surface, how bumpy it is, and and, and how much you can cut the corner, etc. Et so it, it it's a slightly, it's a different technique slightly. In, in principle, it's all, it has also to do with the radius of the curve have the best possible, fastest line through it. In in rallies, you have a problem that nearly every car is understeering for the speeds uh, which we are driving in rallies, because any car gets less understeering with an increase in speed. This means that in rally sport, in the tighter corners, we have to throw the car sideways, force it sideways, so it doesn't understeer too much. And this, the sport slows down, but that's the, the fastest way in valley sport. Whereas in faster sections in rallying, you drive the same line as in racing. Try to avoid the drift, because going sideways slows you down. And the speeds, in, in, like in Bathurst, the Mount Panorama circuit, the s- speeds are reasonably high, so the understeering was not a problem.
0: Is rallying then far more mentally draining because you have to be looking so much at so many factors like the road condition? Did you find rallying a more tiring than on the circuit?
1: Well, not that really, because being then fully professional, I I used the whole year driving the car in, in motorsport. Ah, so okay. you, use, you get used to it then. As I say, you can never drive by force or good luck, because if you drive that, you will never finish. It's not a bravery. You're not trying to to be brave and go over your limit. You try to be sensible and be on the limit all the time. And the point in racing is, it's accuracy, where you start braking, how much you turn the steering wheel, and, and do it accurately because there are many different styles how you can drive a car. Yeah. And being accurate, that will save the car and make consistent lap times, which is a whole point. And if, if you think that the, the brakes, you cannot brake as late as possible because the brakes will overheat. You will have to understand and think what would be the right compromise for braking, slowing down the speed?
0: You speak very clearly and very articulately and very precisely. You were known as the professor. Does that reflect your approach to be very ordered and thorough and thoughtful about the driving?
1: Well, uh, I don't believe to drive just by talent and, and, and by, by force and having a Real, you know, people say the the will to win. Because if you start doing these things, you just confuse your mind. You have to be calm and do it analytically. It's my opinion. I have always done it that way. Because, you see, I, I have started when I was very, very young. I started 51 already. I was then 12, 13. With speedboats, which is also quite a wild sport, with circuit racing with speedboats in, in Scandinavia and Europe, and I, I was seven times the Finnish champion with speedboats. So, and that is about a line. What line you take? This is a critical thing because the boats are nearly equally fast. All all the top all the top sport boats.
0: And you would have to read the water and those conditions carefully,
1: very carefully. Yes, you see, there are on circuit racing on boats there are no really big waves except the waves made by other boats, and that inset you have to be careful to choose your line going into the bend because you you can't drive everywhere if the if you have a, the whoosh of the car, boat in front of you, it's it's difficult to cross it from outside to the inside, because it's like going uphill, wrong camber. So you have to think, think about these things all the time.
0: You talked about having other boats around you. In a way, the Bathurst race had over 50 cars, and they were different sizes and makes and performance was that a great challenge to you to to navigate your way through other vehicles
1: well no that actually this is what i like in circuit racing i i love the first corner and the first lap yeah. this is this is what i really love because this is where you have to make quick decisions and this is also on the first laps where the cars are very tight together you you cannot drive the so-called ideal line, but you have to decide on the spot what you are going to do. And and, and also my background is is motorcycling. Yes, uh, I was then also the Finnish champion in 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 speedway, which is a 400 meter track, dirt track, where where you are really in physical contact with other bikes most of the time. So that I am, I'm I'm used to the fact that it's, there is not too much space. And that gives your mind a, a lot of possibilities what uh, decisions you will do. But this was not, uh, I would say, a problem or advantage in Bathurst because, after all, it's a, a, quite a long track, which means that the cars were very quickly separated. But uh our as Minis we we tried to form we would call it a train down a Conrad Strait, being so close to each other that we were the bumpers were touching to reduce the air resistance because we were three minis together, bumping down together the, the straight. And the problem was then that the the first mini got good cooling from airstream, but if if I was a second or third car in the middle of a straight, I had to come out of the formation to get fresh air for the engine because the engine would start overheating. So it's all these kind of things. But we were, I think, we were nearly ten miles faster in top speed when we were driving in together in the slipstream.
0: Did that make it scary?
1: No, no, because I, um, I'm so used to these situations, and and uh, if if it's scary, then something is wrong. <laughs> you are either you you are overdoing it, or there are unknown factors which might be scary, but uh, we don't think about that. We don't think it's scary or dangerous. We do it. Analytically, as fast as possible,
0: and that's back to why you particularly liked the management of the BMC uh, rally team back in the 60s and, and on. That it provided that. I, I guess other cars were potentially even quicker than the minis in some rallying. Yet you thought that the preparation gave you good. Not not you did. That the team did gave you an edge the Mini was never the fastest car
1: in speed, in top speed or acceleration but uh, the the fact that I drove the Mini so much and in European rallies we might train a month for one rally driving the same section again and again and again to really put the maximum performance out of it and uh, other teams did, did not train that much as we did. They trained slightly less because they said, ah, it's not necessary and we know what to do, etc. Whereas my opinion was that you have to know the sections in all kinds of climatic conditions, whether it's uh, dry, wet, or frozen, or snow. You have, the same section might be changing in valley sport. So you have to know the road in different conditions and and know what tires and what line. The line is different when the weather is different. You don't drive the same line always. Hmm. So that was the thinking which we did the whole year. And and therefore, uh, in the Barthes race, it was, uh, or in the race, um, specifically always, uh, the conditions don't change much. It might start raining, which change as a small change, but they don't change very much. There are things on the race track like uh, where do other cars leave the rubber on the road? Because that's where the rubber is. It may be more slippery. So it is not the geometrical line which will be the best. You have to see the, the surface. And in the long race, if there are many cars, the surface changes as well because of this, where the cars drive. And and then, of course, in the racetrack, the the, the big problem is is oil on the track. If somebody's dropping oil, and there are flags warning about the oil, but normally, immediately after somebody dropped oil, the flags are not up yet. So that is (laughs) what you said, scary. That is a scary moment. If there is suddenly a, a patch of oil on the road, because that might create uh, some big problems.
0: That's something you have to react to. It might get your heart racing, but is a race an opportunity then to refine each corner as, as the conditions change, but to really doing it over and over again? Would that be one of your strengths, that doing it over and over again provides more and more information just to make that refinement a little better?
1: It, it, yes, it, of course it does. And and, and and long distance range, we have to be careful Is you mustn't turn the steering wheel too much to the inside. I mean, this is the thing we call the slip angle of the wheel. We have to use a slightly smaller slip angle than ideal to, to set the tyres. You have to be, Keep thinking about the tires because in a in, in a front-wheel drive it, it is more difficult than in a rear-wheel drive because in a front-wheel drive the front wheels are doing both acceleration, braking, and steering, whereas in a rear-wheel drive the load is divided more evenly between all four wheels or three wheels because the inside rear wheel tends to be lifted up or, or inside front wheel, depending on how the suspension is set up. And, and this is one thing like uh, I, I normally use always a tape on the steering wheel in the center. Right. So, so I can op- also optically see how far I have turned the wheel. Because in the front wheel drive, you don't have the uh, feedback and steering wheel as you have in the rear wheel drive. Because while you are accelerating and you have a slight um, uh, slip on the front wheel, you don't have the same feedback over the wheel. You have to know by the steering wheel position how much you have turned in. This is one of the vital points in driving front wheel drive, knowing front wheel angle.
0: You uh, said to one who had either invented or perfected left foot braking. What were the advantages of that?
1: Well, the left foot braking is a substitute for handbrake. And uh, the left foot braking is not something we would use in in bathers except in rain. Because left foot braking would then help if the car starts understeering on damp. Suddenly you can compensate it by left foot braking gently. But left foot braking, I, I invented it in 1958 when I was driving Saab, front wheel to a car in rallies, because I made too often holes in the snow banks in winter. And I was I trying to analyze why did the car go be the steering and go straight on. And I, I found that the reason was very often that I turned the wheel too much. Because on ice and snow, you, you don't have the feedback. You have to know how much to turn and, and this is how I then well, my friend said, you are stupid why don't you use handbrake when well, in the entire corners where it's understeering and I said, well I am not a Buddha with six arms so if one arm, one hand is for handbrake one for gear lever, and and, and and should be two at the steering wheel uh, there are hands missing <laughs> and then I so what could I do, and I, I developed this method of using left foot on the brake and right foot on the power at the same time to compensate the understeering, the to, to brake with the rear axle to get the car turning into the corner. So it's, it's not used in the middle of a corner, it's, it's used while you are going into the corner. And it has nothing to do with the fact people say, "Ah, oh, you are quicker from throttle to brake when your foot is ready on the brake pedal." I, I don't think that has any importance in that because we can move the the right foot that quickly from accelerator to brake that it makes no difference. But the fact that you get compensate the understeering tendency in a front wheel drive, it is not. I did never use it in the rear wheel drive except. If a rear-wheel-driven car would get too much sideways over the steering lock, the amount of, how much you can turn the front wheels and will tend to spin, that is the moment where you would use that braking in the rear-wheel-driven car so that you would block or overbrake the front axle and that will start sliding out quicker than the rear axle. And this is how you can stop the spin, in the rear wheel drive. But that is very, very rare when that happens, because that's normally a result of a driving mistake that you get that much sideways. But in the front wheel drive, in principle, they are all front wheel drive cars are understeering, and in rallies, left foot brake is a big advantage. But it is not an advantage in the speeds which you we are driving in others. You don't need it there.
0: But you said that you might consider it on a track if it's raining or raining heavily. Can you readily swap from one style to the other? That, that in itself must mean an immense amount of clear thinking and control on the driver's part.
1: Oh, yes, you can. You can change, I, I can change the style very much. And, and like, for, for instance, uh, at, at, at higher speed, let's say if you're doing 120 miles an hour, and you come to your corner. Then I normally brake first with the right foot, because even with my training with left foot braking, I do have better sense or feeling sensitivity in my right foot.
0: I find that left foot braking is that you've often used your left foot for the clutch, which means you press it to the floor people who make the mistake of going for the clutch and hitting the brake usually jam it on very hard. The braking is an element of control where a clutch tends to be more in and out, does it not? Is that what makes it hard?
1: Well, you don't press the clutch for a braking unless you're just about to stop. You don't press the clutch. But this thing, confusing the brake pedals... Um, And left foot braking, for normal people, it is a problem if you drive an automatic uh, gearbox car Mm. and you use braking on automatic, which you could do, and then you, you, you drive a manual car. Then you swap cars and go back to the automatic car and you have forgotten that you have an automatic car and you like to change gear and you hit the brake pedal thinking it is a clutch pedal. So for normal people, uh, I don't normally recommend left foot braking at all in any car. It it is something, how to control your your legs, your feet. And uh, if, if you're not well trained, it's difficult to do.
0: When you raced at the Bathurst and the car clearly was performing well, I think uh, Hopkirk's car only did 26 laps and the other car with John French finished eighth. Was it recognised that your car went particularly well and was that a good reflection on Bob Holden's input?
1: This is difficult to say because I, well, while all three were running, we uh, we were doing, I think, accurately the same lap times I think. As I said, our big advantage advantage was not to change weights that often. And we saved time there quite a lot by not changing tires. And I I must say that I I I don't remember in detail what happened to to those other minis. But our our many run well. As I said earlier, coming down the Conrad Strait, if you are slipstreaming you to get into overheating problems of over your engine. So this is a point, to what's your temperature gauge? Don't overheat your engine. Mm. And uh, that means that if it starts overheating or getting too hot, you have to d- drop the revs when you change gears by two or 300 revs. Change earlier. That drops your engine temperature like normally. So there are small things which you have to be thinking when you drive.
0: I think many people just think it's bravado, but you've suggested or you clearly indicate that it's very much a science.
1: Well, <laughs> whatever sport you take, it, it, you have to think what you're doing. And, and, and I remember talking to, to Bob, and he used to be a bicycle racer. And, and And he said that there he found out going uphill which would be the best line to take because of the chamber of the road, which had to do a lot of it. So Bob was very much like me. He was thinking about all the details which could have an effect. And I think this is typical for Bob's career, which is a very long one as well, that he, he is a thinker. And I, I I know that um, I've been driving races and rallies all over the world uh, with all kinds of cars, front wheel and rear wheel drive, and, and prototypes and uh, normal saloon cars. And yeah. you have to always try to put to best, make the best out of that car you are at the moment. There is no general line which is the best way. Every instance is. A moment of itself, and you have to adapt to it very quickly. And I think this is a beauty of, of 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 any sport. Try to make the best of the situation.
0: And I think Bob put that through very thoroughly. It's 54 years ago now. You're still in contact with Bob? Yes, yes.
1: I think it's about a, about a year ago we we met in the motor show in in Melbourne.
0: Now, your family, the Alternans, have, have had a long history in organising and helping and supporting uh, motorsport in Finland, particularly, and obviously then performing on the world stage. You knew uh, Simo Lepinen rather well. I think your father was his godfather. He had some health issues early on, didn't he?
1: Well, we, uh, when he was young, before we even drove cars, we, we knew each other as a kid's. And and then um, Simo followed my footsteps when I was driving when I was driving in Finland Saabs. And and he started to drive also Saab in, in, in Finland. Um, well Simo concentrated um slightly more in in Finland than I did because I I was the first Finn to get a work drive was a full year. The one before me was Pauli Toivonen, who occasionally uh, got on loan a Citra works car in rallies in Europe. But I was the first one who had a, a full year contract to do the whole year just rallying and racing for a manufacturer. And that is what brought me out of Finland, because uh, Finland has a very long uh, motorsport uh, calendar. Very many events and, uh, and, and, and I think in the, on the, on the globe and the whole world, I think Australia and Finland are very much like the same in my feeling. Well, the third one is Kenya in East Africa, where, where people love motorsport and talk about it and, uh, men and women, they are, both interested and they know about it a lot, so it's a different attitude when when you love a certain sport. And and this is how Simon Lampine then started. His father was motorcycle racer, like my father. They raced against each other before the Second World War. So we both families had motor racing in 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 blood. And uh, Simo S- 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 could not go motorbike racing because he has had the polio, the sickness, which slightly impaired his legs, but he could drive a car. And we discussed about cars very much, and he sort of followed my example in the beginning very much. And actually, I, I talked to him, I think it was yesterday, he telephoned. He's now living in Hamburg.
0: Simo got um, polio when he was about 13 and that. You knew him then, and I think that friendship was important to him then?
1: This is difficult for my side to say what it helped. But we, we kept meeting, and when I was racing motorbikes, <coughs> more often he came there with his father and family in a wheelchair there is a famous picture when I won the, the Swedish Grand Prix, a motorcycle, how how he's there in a the wheelchair and I is ne- I'm next to my Ducati motorbike. So very possibly it, it helped his mind that he had a target, what he wanted to achieve. This this is very likely. We, but we never talked about about this detail. Uh, 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 as as, as you know that uh, young people and anybody very seldom talk about uh, emotional aspects in life most people think of it but they don't open their mouth and talk about them and this is something I mentioned the word emotional aspect most sport is is nearly not a sport for engineers It is an emotional sport, how to control your feelings, your emotions, because also that decides uh, how perfect you can drive.
0: Bob Holden had a difficult birth and damaged his feet and ankles, and in his youth he had polio. You never um, saw that as a disadvantage or or that, um, nor did he. Is it a an important point that you take people for their passion for the sport and don't look at things that you know others may use against them? Well, I can
1: see that these both for Bob and simolampin and I think the polio probably was something which made them to to, to grow up stronger.
2: Hmm.
1: But there are you know difficulties. Either make you stronger or they break you. There are two chances, and those who survive well, they get stronger, stronger mind, which is something. Because I, I must say that I am no expert on, and I don't think anybody really knows. Sir, and, and Sir, the people have changed. I have trained in my life about twenty thousand people because. I am the founder of BMW driver training in mm. Germany. And I was a chief instructor for a long time and, and that was a huge operation, uh, training people how to drive. And that, that was not to teach the people how to drive in traffic. That was car, about car control, how you can handle your motor car so you can make what you want. This is an aspect that most people never think about, how to control a car, because they think it's it's natural. If you want to go right, you turn the wheel right, but it, it's not that simple. There are many little things in car driving which even a normal
0: motorist should know. Did you then learn the art of assessing where a person's coming from? If they turned up there to try and show off, you would be able to understand why that's wrong and and try to help them become... Let, you know, less arrogant and more analytical?
1: My principle in training people was that I, I tried to make them to go over their own limit so that they could get scared and and see they did a mistake. Mm. Um, because uh, teaching people, it's, uh, more in a way, it's psychiatry. More than about technical details, make the people to think correctly. This is a, the the main goal I had. Have the right thinking, and then you do the right things. And uh, the people's people's thinking about most things are very much guided by the media. The information they get from media, from their friends, and you know be general talk and reading and most information you get about car driving from media is wrong. So I try to put the thinking right. I mean this is theoretically wrong what they are doing.
0: Did you have a good education as a youth? Did, did, did it help you come to this or has this been just life skills you've learnt?
1: Well, I, my, my father had the opinion that in the school the most important thing for Finns is to learn foreign languages. Because he didn't speak anything else but Finnish. And he told me that it doesn't matter how good you are in in anything you do in your life. Unless you speak various languages, you are close to a zero because the the people who you are getting connected to it's limited, so you must understand many languages. Not only that you can talk to them, but that you understand the different approaches different cultures have. So I was put into a language school, and I, I have studied in my life altogether, I think seven or eight languages. Oh. And in the school, and in the school, my best subject was Latin. Huh. Uh, and I still think that that was very vital to all my life, Latin language, because the Latin, it's not about the language and the words and communication. It is to understand the system, because Latin had a very clear grammatical system. And it's, it's a similar thing, in a way, as people today, they study yoga, try to get into yourself, your mind, your things, your thoughts. And uh, so that, for me, my yoga was Latin language. I can't speak it because it's not a spoken language, but that has helped me a lot.
0: I have a colleague in Australia who still teaches Latin, and it's quite often a subject that many Asian uh, students and that come to it. For that, I think the very point you're making that it shows process and, and, a, and a bit of history, of course, of how language develop. developed. To understand that a process is the best way, or the only way, really, to get on top of it, be it rallying or uh, be it in communicating with other people. Is, is, is that a reflection of your approach?
1: You have to understand the details to be perfect. Because I had very many... Con- uh, competitors, friends, in motorsport, who were very, very quick, and they had a different approach. And they, on a way, that's why they gave me the nickname Professor, because they said that I I was getting too much involved with the details. But, uh, as I said, it's a question of, of approach. And while you drive, then you don't have to think about the details. Technically, theoretically, because when you have been thinking about them before, and being have an um, an answer, what to do with different things, it's like to have a, a, a cabinet. You you open the shelf you need when you when uh, the need approaches. So you have to know it all. Once you know it all, you don't have to keep thinking about it anymore. You have it in your head. That's my approach.
0: And you were very analytical after each event, wasn't it? Did you you analyzed what had happened and what was good and bad?
1: Yes, of course, of course, because my my job was also. Uh, this is due to my um, language knowledge. That I've uh, been driving for eleven work teams. And I, I, I have always been the main test driver as well, the development driver, because I was able to talk to the engineers. Because when you are testing, it is not what you feel. In testing, the point is that you must convey, pass the information, what you feel or believe to the engineers, and then discuss with them what will be the possibilities to improve the vehicle. And this is is a very important point in in, this thing. It is not that you just drive and say, ah, this is better, or this is no use. That is no good. You have to be saying why it's good better and why it's of no use. The question why is more important than a simple answer. And uh, this is something which also, in a way, forced me to think when I was driving, what was the reason? Which which wheel was lifting too much or too little? How to set up the suspension? Suspension was my main uh, expertise in, in developing cars. Not not engines and suspension, because um, uh, developing engines it is um, you know of work. You have to be very detailed and a lot of testing and changing parts and having new theories. So I would talk to the engineers also what kind of a character I would like to have in my engine. That, that means that depending on the size of your uh, carburetor as we had earlier, that uh, dictates which uh, rev area you have maximum torque. And depending on a kind of rally, you would then use that kind of engine which you think was best for that. And um, an example is that while in the 60s everybody else used uh, engines which were easy to drive, in a MINI I always opted for the racing camshaft. It Mm -hmm. means that my MINIs in European rallies, they're very high-tuned. They would not operate below 5,000 revs. They were extreme racing in, which I used in rallies. And now you have come to the problem because we then had only four-speed gearbox. Mm. And and uh, the first gear was too fast because we used a racing gearbox with a pulse ratio. The gears have to be closed so you can have a, a maximum acceleration. But this means that in, here, in a hairpin, uh, with this... Very high first gear. I would drop off the cam, as we say. It means that the engine was below its operating uh, revs. Yep. And I saw on the way that in a front-wheel drive, if you turn the wheel quickly in a hairpin, you are lifting the inside front wheel, which starts to spin. So I kept the revs up by spinning the inside front wheel. <laughs> which of course put a tire wear up, but that was not a problem because in rallies we had a service often after every special stage and I could get new tires. This is on tarmac. On, on, on gravel it doesn't apply. It doesn't lift wheels that much on gravel. So it's small things like this. And you have to think about your engine characteristics and the mini engine, like any engine, it, if you put a racing camshaft, it has... The power on a top end, which makes it difficult to drive in the medium reps. But you have to be able to do it, and you have to make, be able to change the gear probably.
0: You've talked uh, uh, wonderfully about how. The thoroughness to look at all the factors involved and to keep thinking about them and to be able yep. to communicate those it's It's a lovely story was that also something that you saw in Bob Holden and appreciated what he, his approach
1: exactly as, as i said before that our ideas and opinions they were very much the same so if it was easy to to talk to him because we thought the same way because you what is of interest is that I've been driving and developing cars for so many different uh, uh, nations and they all have their own cultural approach to different problems and uh, there you have to understand how they think so you are able to talk to them so they so they Accept your opinion, you have to be selling your opinions on the whale in a way that they they accept it. and with Bob, we had none of these problems we We were thinking the same because he was also analytical and and he put uh, a lot of weight on all the details. that was his specialty hmm. yeah so we, we I, I and i don't remember specifically what themes we had in discussions, because we had so many discussions. But it is, it is inter- very interesting when you talk about cars, when you find that the other person has the same uh, thinking as you have and the same ideas, what would be right and what would be wrong. Because that's just a wide theme, motor car, what can be done and what should be done. And this is why certain makes often are winners and certain are not. And this is a question of a different approach.
0: It's important to understand that breadth of where someone else is coming from, not just where you're coming from. It seems to me what you're saying that the Bathurst winning event in 1966 was... The ultimate in a in a cooperation between the two drivers that you weren't competing against each other, you were working together.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Because, uh, well, you said not. What you said is very true. That not working against each other, as as many people in in, in a team do, they have always done that. That means that. If your ego is more important than the result for the team, you are not a good team driver. This is one point.
0: Very important point. You, you've you off, off also, of course, in rallying, have to depend on the co-driver, the navigator. Henry Lyddon, I think, was one of your uh, regulars. Sadly, uh, died in a plane crash, I believe. Yes. He was good, and that was a good team working together? Well,
1: uh, I, I had... When I got to to BMC, my my first co-driver was Tony Ambrose, uh, who was then already an experienced uh, co-driver internationally. And uh, like with him together, we developed the the so-called pace note system for me mini teams. And he went to that extreme that he went to see the professor of communication of a British university to find out which words is used in communication in the car. This is something which people never think about it. Uh, They think it's natural how to talk, but that is not natural. It has to be planned how you do it. There's has so many effects. It will take too long to explain that all to you. But that was Tony Ambrose. And I drove with Tony Ambrose until uh, um, I think 65. I think. No, was it 64? I don't remember 64, 65. And then he had to stop because his private business required that the boss would be present. And then Tony Ambrose found Henry Liddell for me. He found Henry. So Tony knew what kind of a person it should be and what would be the best And he thought Henry was that. So I was very lucky to get Henry and I, we drove with Henry many, many years. And uh, the, it's, Different to normal life when you are in a rally car, the co-driver is the boss. Uh. He, he is the he is the office manager, and he makes he has to take care about all the details so that the driver can concentrate on his driving. This is vital, and and both Tony, Tony Ambrose and Henry Leadon did that perfectly well. And I don't remember that we ever had a fight with either of them. We we never had a fight because if Henry said something, as you mentioned about Henry Lydon, I would accept it because I knew that he had carefully thought what he was going to say. Mm. And uh, that's why I think we were quite a strong team together because he Henry would, he might sort of comment on my driving. I said, well, he says, go faster. You're not putting up all you can. <laughs> and he was using all kinds of small tricks to make me to go faster. Like what? Uh, well, like uh, if he thought that I was getting tired, that is not well concentrated. And uh, when you go to a special stage in a rally, normally you would drive on a main road and then you turn off the main road to a small forestry road where you have the stage. Hmm. And uh, I remember a couple of uh, cases where he purposely let me go past the junction and said, oh, sorry, we should have turned there. Try to making me upset. <laughs> <laughs> so it came to adrenaline higher in my blood, you know. And then, no fight, I just made a U-turn and came back, but I was a little bit angry. And, you know, this makes that you are more aggressive. And, and Henry would know the right limit, how aggressive I should be to put up the, the, the best performance. Because rallying, you know, it's that so long, you know, it might take a week, one rally, which is physically and especially mentally, It's very long. And uh, there, the co-driver is the important supervisor. How the driver is thinking. This is something which many co-drivers don't understand. They think the driver is a machine, and he knows when to change gear and when to turn the steering wheel. But that's not all. As I said earlier, driving is is an emotional business. Hmm. And therefore, your emotions must be controlled the right way. And they must not be running too high. That's also a danger, because then you go off the road.
0: So you have to be a psychologist in those you deal with, but so does your co-driver.
1: Yeah, yes, yes. Well, I was very much depending on Henry, because I trusted him 100% in every respect. This is important. Because you see, when you are training for early practising, we call it recceing, which comes from the word recognizing the route. We spent half of the year together in different hotels and eating every evening together and having breakfast together and the whole day. And This means that unless you get on well, you will get fed up on something and it doesn't work. But. The point is that both Tony Ambrose and Hendrick Lindner, they were both real gentlemen, understanding all the aspects. And this is important to have such a person to support you. And the same thing is, in racing, you normally drive just yourself. You don't change driver because most racists are shorter. But in a team, it would be an advantage if the whole team could talk together. But this is very often a big problem because of jealousies. People don't don't discuss openly because they want to be faster than their colleague. And that is uh, detrimental for the whole team. So this team aspect is much more important than anybody thinks. And uh, today the media says, oh, well, that's a about any sport, that's a good team, meaning that the team has many good members, whereas I understand that a good team is something where the communication is perfect, which is much higher than just having three good people.
0: It's the overall result, not just the sum of the parts. It's how they work together, I think.
1: You are right, yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, in fact, dealing with unusual situations in the African safaris, I think you were stoned on a number of occasions.
1: I think that I've been stoned um, 82 times in my career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed that you counted it as well, but it wasn't necessarily malicious, was it?
1: No, no. You see, it's uh, some of the local kids, you know, they found it interesting trying to hit the car with a rock when it comes back so uh, uh, this is a little bit cruel but this is what we had to do if we if we saw somebody walking on the roadside where we are, uh, we were approaching sort of 100 miles an hour on dirt before we came very close I, I would swing the car to get a little bit sideways so that the person would get scared and would start running away The reason is, it's difficult for the running man to throw a rock. (laughs) And, you know, all kinds of tricks like these. Because if you are, if he's walking steadily, he might have a rock in his hand. And when you then are very close to him, he will then throw the rock to the center of the road. I mean, quite high. And it will hit your windscreen. That's what they often try. So I could avoid that by making them to run.
0: Oh, that's that's beautiful.
1: <laughs> that's <a laughs> not not that, not touching them, not going too close, but just scaring them. No, no. I mean, This is what people would say: that you are you are naughty and terrible, and that's not the right way to do. And etc. cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that that's life.
0: No, no, no one would judge you harshly. I don't think on that. You, you weren't and being malicious, you were just being preventative.
1: Um, yes, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> I think that's lovely. Occasionally, I guess, things do go wrong. Was it in the marathon? Did you get lost in the Australian Alps? It's a long time ago. Do you remember that? Where I got lost was in the London, Sydney. Yeah.
1: That was I was in 1970, London, Sydney. No, it was, six, it was 68. 68,
0: yeah.
1: It was 68. And there, uh, the last night had full of incidents, and Lucy and Bianchi, who was re- leading in the Citroën, was hit by, a, by another car on open Road. And uh, so for a short moment, we were leading outright the event. And then it started to happen for us that... Uh, we had a puncture. And ah. uh, after the puncture, uh, it was Henry Liddon, who was my co-driver there. I had two co-drivers. We had Henry Liddon and Paul Easter. It was a big car. It was a 1800 Austin. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we could we could have three people in the car because it's very retiring to drive continuous at such, Kind uh, of a short, long distance, and uh, Henry wrong-slotted, and we went to the wrong road. And while we were on the wrong road, we got another puncture, and we had two spare wheels, so we changed and And when we got to the right road again, we got the third puncture. And now we had now we had no more spare wheels, so uh, and, and that was a front wheel puncture, and in a front wheel drive, that was a front wheel driven car. You you must not try with a, with a flat uh, tire on one side because that rotates faster, being a, a smaller radius for the tire. Yes. And your diff will go. So I then changed the rear wheel to the front and put the punctured, the flat tire, in the back. And then we continued on the flat tire on, on one side in the rear. And all that took time. So I, I think we finished fifth, fourth or fifth, hmm. because, you know, lost, we lost so much time in wrong slotting and changing those tyres. But, you know, these are things which can happen.
0: Uh, well, you see, that's the point then. How did you, your emotional strength, the, I mean, the London to Sydney's a very long rally to have that bad luck at the very last minute while you were potentially in the lead or were in the lead. Did that draw on your emotional strength? How did you cope with that?
1: Well, while you are in an event, you you must re- really concentrate on your job, driving and putting up the best possible result. And you must not get upset about any problems, because if you get upset, the next thing is that you go off the road. This is important. Keep your mental balance on the upper limit, but not over it.
0: You have a very clear vision of how to work well in the world. Do you hope that the world will embrace, either from you or other sources, embrace that approach? Is it an approach we need to take on now so very, very importantly?
1: Well, put your question a little bit differently or answer is that the problem in the world today is that the communication has developed maybe too quickly. Every, every nation or culture, it would be the better word, every culture has, has their own approach to different questions. And now with, with the digital communication, the communication is so quick And people get so many ideas, and it's so simple to say, so the whole world knows and hears what you say. And it's very typical, like if you say in German language, well, well, in English language, you would say, would you like to come or would you like to do? And in German language, you don't say, would you like to do it? You say, do it. (laughs) And it's it's considered perfectly normal. It's it's your tone of your voice, and it's a whole sentence. Uh, And it is not hurting anybody, but this is a different kind of approach in communication in different languages and countries and and, uh, cultures. Mm -hmm. English is spoken in very many different ways in the world as well. So this is a problem that I think that we, today, in the world, we we are thinking quicker or saying more than we are thinking. That would be the way of saying it. We are talking more before we really thought what we mean. And there are so many misunderstandings, which there are many examples. Uh, like in Europe, there was this, for Great Britain, there was a Brexit. Mm. Uh, There is, at at the moment, uh, there are problems with immigrants in Germany, where I believe that out of 80 million people, there are 20 million immigrants, and uh, the local people are not not all very happy with that situation. At the same time, we have Mr. Trump uh, and Mr. Biden, who had have certain problems in USA, America. And I mean, very many of these things, if you go to the background, I think is communication. People talk past each other without knowing really what the other one is wanting, willing or doing.
0: The work between a pilot and a co-pilot has often fallen down for those very same reasons. In an aeroplane, it is a very universal thing that we need to be considering
1: Uh, absolutely absolutely this is something that we should put more thoughts into detail what we think when we are young and this has very much to do with the schooling system how good are the teachers Mm. and i'm not criticizing the teachers at all but Uh, The schooling, education systems are very different in in all uh, cultures. And the way how how, uh, densely a country is uh, also inhabited has an important thing. Because if people live close to each other, they communicate more. And we notice this in Finland, or I notice at least, that in Finland, which is not densely populated, Finland has the same... um, area as Western Germany used to have. And we are only five and a half million people. So people don't live very close to each other. Australia has the same thing, but there you have big deserts. The center is uh, Mm. uninhabited because it's not very favorable for for farming, etc., in the desert. Or it's too far away, which is one point. So there you have also concentrated big cities. Where people do communicate. But Finland is not densely populated. We, are, we live far apart. And our, we don't tend to build up b- villages where there are 20, 50 houses together. In Finland, our village is three houses, so far apart. And then it's long distance to the next village. So we don't communicate very much, which I see has disadvantages and advantages. Advantage is that everybody has to be able to do many things you you can't get help. you mustn't know how to do it yourself. And the next thing is when uh, you're quite lonely uh, that you have time to think, go into yourself and think of different things and and This is something which can be good or bad because very often it can happen that if you don't have anybody to discuss communicate, you come to wrong and bad thoughts, which are not positive. And mm. these things of, of the community and the communication, the, the, the words sound very close to each other, community and communication, but it has to do with the same thing. There are people who are very close to each other. I think this is a secret in the, in the world, in, in every culture, how it works. And we are not yet Ready for it? The quick uh, development in communication, where we can—I can tell you now, over telephone things. I could be telling you terrible things and shouting and going out of myself. I mean, theoretically, and this is what often happens to people. They are too loud without thinking why they are loud. (laughs) You see what I mean?
0: What I mean? What you have shown and exemplified in your rally experience, but also in other things, of course, is that there's a lot to take in, but there's a need to then ponder on that, but there's also a need to bounce it off someone else so you don't go crazy.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I have a very small thing here to point out. Two years ago, I was racing in Mexico in in La La Carrera Panamericana, which I think, one of the nicest events I have ever done, but I, I had, the, you know, the expectations of Mexico that you know here, the gentlemen uh, walk with a big sombrero and they have, you know, two Colts on their belt, you know, ready to shoot, and you know, uh, it's it's a dangerous place because of that. I mean, that was the impression the films give of Mexico. the Mm, yes filmed and, and videos in television very often, and when I came to Mexico, I found that uh, uh, because we, I, I, I traveled it was a long event was three thousand six hundred kilometers it took nearly a week, went through Mexico, different parts, met very many local people and I must say that as a, as a whole they are the nicest people in the whole world I have ever met. Uh. When we take it as a whole, very sympathetic, nice, helpful. Now the world tries to make that there are so many, so many cr- criminals in Mexico because and that is because of the drug business. There are certainly, but the normal Mexicans they are beautiful people, and I don't talk about educated and uh, I mean. At work, they are certainly educated. But the very wealthy people who normally behave nicely, that I talk about everybody who we met during the rally, they were all really sympathetic and nice. I, I have lost my heart for Mexico.
0: And that was only a couple of years ago. If I might say, were you 81 or so then? I was 81, yes. Your whole life, you must have got, you clearly show great enjoyment out of meeting and interacting with good people. It's not just you showing off. It's that community. You, you've enjoyed the communities, you've interacted with them, be it a, a, a team or a group or, or even just the country you've gone through. That community is very important to you?
1: Yeah, I think so, yes, because it's important to understand that every one of us alone is worth nothing. We we cannot achieve anything alone. We whatever we do, we need always somebody else's assistance. If not at the moment, then before or later. But at mo- one moment, we are totally depending on the on the community. And and therefore, it's important to understand how the thinking in a certain culture works. And in my opinion, I must say that uh, all the races, whether they are black white, yellow, Hmm. red. Uh, In principle, they are all the same. There's no difference when you get into uh, a deeper contact with them. But people try to categorize these different, that they think this way and this is like that. They are all the same if you get close to them. But the background makes a difference how they've been taught and brought up and educated this is why they talk about things differently and then the media today is forming the opinions and that is not often very positive
0: They're often forming the opinions on one's stereotype rather than as you would do is analyse the depth and breadth of uh, the people involved
1: Very often yes, yes. but I'm, I'm not criticising the world I'm just saying that you have to understand this, and you have to be humble. There's no point to be aggressive because you don't win anything. You can win the people on your side by being humble.
0: Well no, I've uh, taken much of your time, but I have enjoyed this immensely. I always found you inspiring in terms of your driving. I find this inspiring in terms of your perception, your understanding of process and your enjoyment of working with people. I thank you very, very much for your time.
1: Thank you, David. It was very nice of you to call me. Thank you. And please, my best regards to Bob and Colleen.
0: Yes, of course. I popped up and saw them in their home just uh, late last week. Yes. They're always a joy to be with and to talk to. And uh, I know they speak of you fondly as well. A race got together two people from different cultures but the same approach and produced obviously a great result but it's not just a result of that event it's a an, a communication that's friendships that have lasted a long time and i must say that's a great example to me thank you again for your time oh yes
1: thank you david
0: thanks for more information about this interview and others go to drivenmedia.com.au i'm david brown